Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. Dr. Riggio is the Henry R. Kravis Professor of Leadership and Organizational Psychology at Claremont McKenna College. He has a PhD in Social and Personality Psychology from UC Riverside. Dr. Riggio is a leadership scholar with more than two dozen authored or edited books and more than 250 articles and book chapters. His research interests are in leadership, nonverbal communication, organizational communication, and social competence. For several decades, he has studied the role of nonverbal communications and communication skill in relationships, including relationships at work. He has been an active and prolific Psychology Today blogger for more than a decade. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. You know, I was really excited to talk with you, both because I'm interested in this topic and I think it'll be really interesting on understanding nonverbal cues and behaviors, but also because you're a faculty member down there at Claremont McKenna College. And I don't know if you know this, but I went to Pitzer College way, way back in the day. Oh, yeah. Well, the Claremont Colleges are great, you know, and I know I know you're located in Hawaii and a lot of our students come from Hawaii. Yeah, it seems like the Claremont Colleges seem to recruit pretty heavily here, and a lot of kids enjoy going there. But I, I really love Claremont, and I love the, the Claremont Colleges, so I am envious that you get to have your faculty position over there. You must really, really enjoy being down there. Yeah, I do. I do. It's a great place. So we're talking about this subject of understanding nonverbal cues and nonverbal behaviors, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about your background first how you got into this, why you're interested in it, and where it all came from for you. Okay. Well, I was interested in a lot of areas of, of psychology, and I still am, uh, you know, uh, sort of wide-ranging interests. And I think when I was an undergrad, I got interested in, in what's called self-fulfilling prophecy and Robert Rosenthal's work with, with that, where essentially what they found is that if somebody holds expectations about another person, they can subtly influence those other people through nonverbal cues. And that started him on the study of nonverbal communication. When I went to graduate school, I worked with one of uh, Professor Rosenthal's students who had been at Harvard, uh, Howard Friedman, and he was very interested in nonverbal communication. And so I worked uh, with him and with some other of the Rosenthal group and studied a wide range of nonverbal behaviors, areas like gestures and uh, facial expressions of emotion and, and, and things like that. But where I really focused uh, and, and where I think Howard Friedman and I started focusing on is this idea of individual differences in people's ability to communicate non-verbally. And there wasn't a lot of research in that area. And so that's where I've spent a lot of my time. Yeah, and I know that you also do quite a bit of research and work in leadership, and that might be a conversation that we could have for another podcast episode someday. But I imagine with the leadership work you do, these non-verbal behaviors are probably important. Yeah, and, and, and we'll kind of get into that because one of the things that we started studying is what makes people charismatic and what are the nonverbal elements of charisma, right? Why, why are we drawn to certain kinds of people? And then naturally then that segues into charismatic leadership. And so that's really how I got into leadership. Makes a lot of sense. So tell us what are nonverbal behaviors and why are they relevant to the day-to-day -day social interactions and work that people do? Think of it this way, Aaron, we spend all of our time in school and before we get to school, preschool with our parents, working on verbal communication, right? We learn to speak, uh, we learn to read, we learn to write, we go to school and we spend all of this time on verbal communication, but we get no formal training in nonverbal communication. Mm. So you sort of have to just pick it up. You know, I mean, clearly, you know, your mother might say, Aaron, stop making that face, you know, <laughs> And, and so you may get some of that feedback, but it's pretty informal, but it's fantastically complex. 
Um, how do we know that someone is telling us the truth? Um, well, we look to the nonverbal, we listen to the verbal cues, but we also look at their nonverbal behavior. How do we know that someone is troubled or, um, you know, or happy or sad, you know, and all of that is communicated nonverbally and we're really influenced by it, but we don't understand it very well because we didn't get any formal training in it. That makes perfect sense. It really sounds like, I mean, I can't remember having any training in school or any instruction on nonverbal behavior. We had to give a lot of presentations, public speaking. It was what you were saying and how you were saying it, but there wasn't a whole lot about other cues that I learned. Yeah. And in fact, even when they do public speaking, they tell you things like, uh, you know, don't use too many us or, you know, that, that kind of thing. And those are kind of nonverbal cues because they're not actually words. But even then, we, they focus speech professionals focus more on the verbal aspects than the nonverbal. But the nonverbals are very important. Well, we'll get into a little bit more about how people develop these nonverbal skills later. I know you've written quite a bit about that. But I was wondering if there's any kind of a connection that we know about regarding nonverbal skills and emotional intelligence. Can, can you make any kind of connections with that? Yeah, I can actually, I can make a lot of connections with that because what happened was, and we weren't the only ones studying nonverbal skill, but we called it nonverbal skill or sometimes emotional skills if we were focusing on that. And our work actually predates the coining of the term emotional intelligence. And so I think, you know, being sort of traditional academic, intelligence in psychology is kind of a sacred term. And it really means how your brain functions, you know, how quickly your synapses fire and all those kinds of things. And so when the first researchers started calling, essentially they were calling nonverbal skills or emotional skills, emotional intelligence, and they mm -hmm. took that leap. So our work actually predates that. So I never dared to call emotional skill, emotional intelligence, but going back, the building blocks of emotional intelligence are really those specific emotional skills. And in fact, lots of the work that we did is cited in the more popular books on emotional intelligence. I see. So it's the, the term intelligence is a little funny the way you use it, but what I'm hearing is like being able to read a room, being able to read another person's expressions or nonverbal behavior to get a cue of what they're thinking or feeling. Those are all part of what might go into what considers emotional intelligence. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So they're the sort of building blocks of emotional intelligence or many, you know, and emotional intelligence gets a little broader. They talk about how, how you use emotions to inform your thinking but the sort of day-to-day -day interactions we have with other people are all based on emotional and nonverbal skills. Got it. So you've broken down several different types of nonverbal skills that people utilize in their day-to-day -day interactions, the work they do in their um, interactions with people. And I'd like to spend a little time talking about them. Sure. One of them that you've written quite a bit about is this idea of nonverbal decoding. So that sounds like a pretty fancy term. Why don't you break that down for us and explain yeah. what that is and how people use that in their communication? Yeah. So what I tried to do when I looked broadly at, at uh, nonverbal skills is I tried to break it down into its core components. And if you think about communication, and I actually sort of stole this from Communication 101, right? that you can either send a message, what is technically called encoding, or you can um, receive a message, which is technically called, technically called decoding. And when we talk about people's individual differences, then we get into skills. And so your ability to express emotions would be your emotional encoding ability or just emotional expressiveness. That's the term we use. On the flip side, what you've mentioned is emotional decoding skill. And that's really your sensitivity to other people's nonverbal emotional expressions. So can you read the subtle facial cues of emotion? Can you tell from somebody's posture that they're upset, anxious, uh, or angry? You know, the clenched fists, you know, we can think of all the mm -hmm. kind of more stereotypic cues associated with those emotions. But what we find is that people vary in their individual 
abilities to decode others' nonverbal cues. Now, if you want to kind of translate that into more common uh, psychological terms, then we talk about things like empathy. So nonverbal decoding skill is critical for empathy because I can't have empathy for you, Aaron, if I don't read that you're having some emotional situation or emotional appearance. Got it. So decoding is reading the cues of other people, understanding them, what's the emotion being conveyed, what is the meaning behind their behavior. Tell me how encoding works in terms of one's, one's behaviors. So encoding is that ability to infuse your communication with, with emotions. And so if we talk about something like a, a charismatic speaker, right, they put that emotion into it. You know, we, I mean, we, you can sort of see the other side. Um, we've all seen these sort of deadpan characters. Yeah. And they're almost funny because they don't, they're unable to infuse much emotions. And I'm trying to think, Ben Stein. Ben Stein was the actor who's in Ferris Bueller. And he's teaching that class and everybody's bored. And he's the one who says, uh, Bueller, Bueller, you know. And, and that, that guy, Ben Stein, has, made, has a reputation of being completely non-charismatic, mm-hmm. of, of sh- infusing no emotion into his, into his speech. So he's sort of the opposite of a very a good emotional encoder. So I'm getting the sense that a charismatic person is a good in- encoder because they're able to draw people in with their emotion and be able to communicate on a feeling level. I guess emotion and feeling is really important to engage people. Absolutely. Because we're not going to pay much attention to, um, you know, to somebody who's sort of a monotone or, you know, they, they don't capture our interest, right? Because sure. we're, we're looking for those cues. Ron, do you see a correlation between encoding and decoding in, a, in a, an individual person's skills? Yeah, we do. We, we, now, it's not a real strong uh, relationship, but it's a positive relationship. And the way you could think about that is it sort of takes one to know one, right? Yeah. And so if you're good at expressing emotions, you already kind of have a slight advantage in reading other people's emotions and vice versa. That sort of makes sense. And one of the things that I've argued is that charismatic individuals, and what I really am focusing on is this kind of idea of personal charisma. What are the uh, sort of everyday abilities that people have to influence other people, as opposed to charismatic leadership, people who are in high-level leadership positions? But we can look to those charismatic individuals and see them as representative of people who possess a lot of personal charisma. Yeah, you've mentioned uh, the idea of nonverbal regulation and control or nonverbally skilled. I guess that's also another word for some of these people you're talking about. Yeah, and so the way I think about it is in, in basic communication, you can express yourself, you can encode, you can read other people's feelings and emotions and nonverbal behavior, so you can decode, but we also regulate them. And that regulation is sometimes we don't want to express emotions. And you can think of, you know, you're playing poker or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. you don't want to like smile when you get a great hand. And so we do have to be able to regulate our emotional expressions and, uh, you know, to be empathic with someone. So to truly connect with somebody in kind of an empathy situation, we need to be able to read the other person's feelings. I get that you're very sad, Aaron, and something must have happened. And I can reflect back. I can control my expression so that I show a concerned face to you. It would be kind of weird if you're sad and I have a smile on my face. And so some of the regulation comes in and blends with the emotional expressiveness or the encoding skill and helps us to control our our expressions. And so the regulation is really important. And actually, you know, we're not going to talk much about leadership, but for leaders, one of the things they have to do in a very crisis situation is can regulate their emotions. I mean, if the leader, you know, there's a fire and the leader runs screaming from the room, <laughs> you know, that's not good leader behavior. So one of the things that we talk about too is the importance of being able to regulate and control your emotional expressions. Well, I think that really makes sense for the work I do as a therapist. 
it's really important to be able to know how to read the room and regulate the emotions and the behaviors. On the one hand, it's important to be very empathetic and try to understand what the other person is going through. On the other hand, if we're sort of falling apart while the other person needs some strength to be held in that space, that's not gonna do them any good. That's right. That's right. And, and very often therapists have to control their emotional expressions. They're going to hear things that, wow, you know, I didn't expect to hear that. And you can't show that kind of expression in that, in that therapeutic situation. So, you know, that's the thing in a lot of positions, in a lot of jobs, like being a counselor, being a therapist, and also being a leader, right? It's very important to have these very well-developed skills. So on a side note here, I remember in some of your writings, you talked about these wizards. Tell us about the wizards. Early in my career, I, when I was doing research in nonverbal communication, I worked with Paul Ekman's group up at UC San Francisco. And, and Paul Ekman is kind of the godfather of facial ex, work on facial expressions. I mean, yeah. he, he was the one who was really a pioneer. But I was interested in individual differences. And I worked with uh, one of his associates up there, Marino Sullivan. And what she was looking at was people who, as she and Paul Ekman were looking at people who were really extraordinary detectors of deception. And I did my dissertation on uh, nonverbal cues of deception, right? So how, how can you tell somebody's lying or telling the truth? And that is probably the most complex single situation from a nonverbal and also verbal perspective. But if you think about it, you know, the, the classic example, you know, you bring in the, the suspected criminal, the police bring them in. Did you do it? Yes or no? Well, they're going to say, no, I didn't do it. So right. the verbal is held constant, right? There's nothing going on there, but they're looking at the nonverbal cues. And if you think about lie detector tests, they're, they're measuring the physiological cues associated with anxiety and emotions. So the wizards were these people and they tested thousands of people and they found not very many. I think it was under a hundred people who were really good at detecting deception. Now, if you just take a normal population, we use college students in a lot of the studies I did, the average detection of deception is not above chance. Wow. There's very few people who can even statistically be beyond chance. The best person I ever found who was probably a wizard, uh, but this was earlier than the wizard research, was about 59% where 50% was chance. And he was the absolute very best. Most mm. people were in the you know 48 to 52% accuracy range. And why? Well, it's extremely complex. Deception is extremely complex. And in a real world situation too, the deceiver is watching your nonverbal cues to see if you're skeptical and then working real hard to persuade you that they're telling the truth. Mm -hmm. right? And there's certain things that we do know about detection of deception. Now, back to that kind of went off on the wizards here, but back to the wizards, when Maureen O'Sullivan and, and Paul Ekman were studying them, and she sort of conveyed this to me. She said what their strategy was not to look for specific cues, because if you look for specific cues, that can lead you to make mistakes. And I'll give you an example in a minute. But what they looked for was something wasn't right. It was like they had this sense that things weren't matching up. And that was what led them to, to be uh, better. But even the wizards were only... 65%. I mean, they weren't, you know, that great. Now there was a, a TV show made about Paul Ekman and Marino Sullivan's work called lie to me. I don't know if you remember that there was a TV series and they, you know, a little bit of Hollywoodizing those wizards yeah. were way better than the actual wizards, you know, but some of our research showed, for example, when we just looked at people who were lying and who were telling the truth and we coded all of their nonverbal behaviors. And what did we find? Well, we found that eye contact could tell whether somebody could statistically distinguish whether somebody was lying or telling the truth. But Aaron, I'm going to ask you, what do you think about eye contact and deception? Well, I don't know. It would seem to me that that would be a pretty easy thing to fake if one was trying to do, do so. 
that a, a liar can't look you in the eye, right? Well, well, that, 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 I think that would be the, the liar can't look you in the eye is probably the common wisdom about that. But a liar right. who is really trying to lie probably could get around that. It's not too hard to be consciously making sure you're looking at somebody in the eyes. Yes, and you got, you got that exactly. What we found in our studies was that when people were lying and they knew they were lying, obviously, they looked the other person in the eye more than when uh, they were telling the truth. So it. actually the exact opposite of common sense. So think about this. If you're trying to detect if somebody's lying and you use the amount of eye contact as a cue, you know, the other thing that we think about is lying makes people nervous. That's the idea behind polygraphs. And so we think if we see a lot of nervous movements or people, uh, 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 you know, uh, stuttering or whatever, we think those are cues to um, deception, but they're not, they're not necessarily reliable. Sure, because people could feel anxious, even if they're telling the truth, worried that they're going to get busted for something that they didn't do. Absolutely. And so that's the, now, now the other thing too, is that the detectors have biases. So we have general people have what is called honest demeanor bias. Well, the first bias is that we're more likely, even if we're told half the time, these people are lying half the time they're telling the truth. People see more truth than lies. Even when they know it's 50-50, they, they guess about 60% are honest or mm -hmm. tell the truth and 40% are lies, okay? But the demeanor bias is this. People who engage in certain kinds of nonverbal behaviors are just seen as more truthful overall. And what are some of those cues? Well, if you talk quickly, if you use a lot of facial expressions, if you have very fluent and quick speech, and so that kind of fits the sort of fast talking, eloquent salesperson, right? Who's kind of trying to mm -hmm. put something on you, you know? And so what happens is people are fooled by those very, very sort of fluid uh, kinds of presentations. And that's why we get fooled a lot by con artists, by unscrupulous salespeople. Well, not, not to try to encourage deceit in this show and getting people to learn <laughs> how to be liars, but just as far as in whatever kind of work people are doing, appearing more authentic and genuine and trustworthy, those would be the kinds of skills to work on, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so here's the thing. I mean, you can fake it, but you can also do it. You know, you can also work on your, on your nonverbal skills and your emotional skills, and you can make a better connection with people. And that's why I became so interested in leadership too, is because leaders have to have that sort of authentic connection mm -hmm. with their followers. And a lot of that, it involves emotions. And what happens in, in a lot of workplaces is people in management or leadership positions say, I don't want to get emotionally involved with, you know, this is a transactional kind of thing. And that's kind of the wrong approach because mm -hmm. we want our bosses, we want our, our leaders, our authorities to have a connection with us at an emotional level. Sure. I imagine people are more likely to want to follow somebody that they feel understands them and cares about them. That's right. And that's where we get into the charismatic leader, right? The, the leader who really seems to care about me and the leader who inspires me. And we have a common connection. You know. Well, I think it's really interesting going back to the wizards just one last time here that, sure. you know, it seems like there's this sort of quality that they pick up on that you can't really quantify so easily. It's just sort of the whole picture. They have a way of keying in on a variety of different complex cues and just coming up with an impression that I imagine they can't give you the specific reasons why it just sort of, this doesn't feel right to me. This person's trying to deceive me. And that sounds like a, like a really amazing skill. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you is when it comes to these nonverbal behaviors, aside from learning them, if one is actually trying to learn how to develop those skills separately as an adult, how do you think one develops these growing up? Like what separates those who tend to have really excellent nonverbal skills, nonverbal behaviors versus those who struggle at it? Yeah. So I think a lot of it is we get a lot of this from our parents, right? So if mm. our parents are, you know, and, and we sort of see this, you know, if you have very sort of expressive parents and then the children team seem to be more expressive. And, you know, we do get that kind of 
kind of training from our parents. You know, like I sort of suggest, you know, you, your mother says well, you're making a face or, you know, you need to control your control yourself, that emotional control. We learn those kind of things. So we do develop them. You know, that being said, very few of us are all are really nonverbally skilled. You know, we just um, we all can improve. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just like becoming a good public speaker. Right. You know, you go and you practice. And so it's the same thing with nonverbal behavior. You've got to put the time in. You've got to put the energy in and, um, and and practice. And the difference between verbal and nonverbal is verbal. We have dictionaries. We have all kinds of things to help us. We can find very sophisticated words if we want to impress people. Um, you know, we can we can do that kind of work. But we don't have dictionaries of nonverbal behavior, so we have to sort of develop it much more informal. Yeah, what you're telling me about the parents modeling the behavior is something that we often call mirroring in clinical psychology terms, where one's expressing themselves, the parent is mirroring it back, and you're getting some feedback about the behavior. So that part I see coming from the family, and I'm guessing that there's a certain amount of this is just is uh, innate in the person that some people are biologically born with those brain areas that are better at that than other people. And then there's, then there's just learning and practice. So it's, there's a few different components to it. Yeah. And, and, and I think everybody can get better at it. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And if you think about it, I mean, that's what actors do, right? I mean, they learn to cry on cue. My daughter took an improv class and that was something that was kind of not on, you know, heavily on my radar screen, but improv means you've got to do it very quickly and you've got to and you really got to be good at reading the other people in uh, in the scene right and so any of those kinds of things will help you any public speaking courses because they do focus on the nonverbal cues too they'll they'll tell you well you know you kind of we're talking about something positive but your face looked negative and so you need to fix that you know but if we're going to learn nonverbal cues, I mean, if people wanted to do this at home, I mean, there's some things that are very important. One is you've got to be motivated. You've got to and have a plan. You know, you've got to spend some time doing this. you got to get some feedback, some feedback about what are your strengths? What are the areas that need improvement? Yeah. And in a moment here, I want to get into some specific cues that we can talk about that I think will be fun to discuss. One last thing I want to ask you about regarding the theory, though, is about cultural considerations, because I know people in different cultures probably express things non-verbally different than others. And what have you come across in your research and studies on cultural considerations around non-verbal behaviors? Yeah. So I think the basic dimensions of that we talked about, the, the sensitivity or the decoding, the expressiveness, uh, you know, or the encoding skills, you know, all those, those skills are universal, right? So, but it's how it's the sort of what we call, what I think Ekman called display rules, you know? So if we look at, for example, just sort of a generalization, but many Asian cultures are less emotionally expressive than Western cultures. And if you look at sort of emotional expressiveness, you'd have the Asian cultures a little more you know, reticent to express emotions, Americans somewhere in the middle, Middle Easterners, Italians, Mediterranean people tend to be much more expressive and much more effusive. So there are those kind of cultural differences. So no doubt there are cultural, there are subcultural differences. So when we think about, you know, we learn languages, we're going to go live in Spain for a while. Well, we're going to take Spanish and we're going to learn a little bit about Spanish culture. But the nonverbals, are different too, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, paying attention to those nonverbal cues is important too, and the cultural differences. So, would it be correct to say that in all cultures, you have this process of encoding and decoding the nonverbal behavior, but that just might be modulated to fit the culture, so to That's speak? That's right. That's and right. So, so, in an Asian culture, maybe the encoding is a little more muted in terms of the way emotion is expressed, but on the decoding end of things, on the other side, that's understood because that's consistent within the cultural framework. Yes, yes. And, and in fact, up, uh, Ekman and his colleagues and uh, another guy up there at San Francisco State, Dave, uh, David Matsumoto, they found that Japanese-American students 
scored lower on their their measures of decoding skill of emotional decoding skill and so they had to develop a specific measure for japanese american students because the stimuli they were using facial expressions of emotions were different for japanese americans than uh than you know caucasian americans yeah that's super interesting research they do some amazing work up there so yeah, yeah. Well, let's get into some of these specific nonverbal cues. I think that will be really fun to talk about. And maybe sure. you could explain what some of these mean and how people could both encode and decode on these different behaviors sure. to learn how to be better communicators and understanders of communication. So let's talk, with, uh, talk about fake smiling, first of all. What is that? Yeah, so that's actually something that, that Paul Ekman also um, uh, talks a lot about. And the idea of fake smiling is is you know we smile in a lot of different social situations because smiling is seen as a sort of acceptable positive cue. What Ekman's work, he talks about genuine versus fake smiles. And he, he actually terms genuine smiles, Duchesne smiles after mm. a, a French scientist who started studying facial expressions. And the difference is when we are actually happy and smiling and it's natural, there's that sort of crow's feet at the eye. That's one of the giveaway. A fake smile is more just at the mouth level, right? So the, the, the rest of the face sort of doesn't get involved. There's some real interesting research. Some of the people who studied smiling is that for people who are not very good decoders, a smile is a smile is a smile. They may, for example, and I'm going to give you kind of a stereotyped situation, but imagine a male supervisor and a female employee, and the male supervisor has said something that made the female employee a little bit uncomfortable. And a response, a common response for, for both men and women, but women in that situation is to put on a fake smile. Mm -hmm. right? And the clueless... <laughs> um, supervisor may see that smile and say, oh, she's happy with things. But that smile is actually covering up her discomfort. And so there's an example of where being able to tell that it's a fake smile might be important because it might cause you to reflect on what did I do that caused that fake smile in a situation where I was hoping for a real smile, you know? Sure. And so am I understanding that with a fake smile, there's more in the mouth, but sort of the rest of the face is not as animated as you would expect in a in an actual happy smile. Yeah. And then there's a, a distinction made too, is when we express emotions, we can pose those emotions or they can be much more spontaneous. And if you think about schools of acting, they represent those too, right? So one school of acting says, well, just learn to fake the emotion. The other school, I think method acting, they say, think of something sad if you want to cry, right? Mm -hmm. And they're very different. If you talk to actors who are trained in those different models, you know, the, the, the sort of method, they will try to think of something really depressing and make themselves cry. And the other ones just sort of turn it on. And I, we haven't done these studies, but my guess is we, if we could study the subtle cues, we'd be able to tell which methodology they were using. Yeah, su super interesting. Let's talk about self-soothing and displacement behaviors. Yeah, so self-soothing and displacement behaviors, you usually you're seeing these, you know, people sort of rubbing their hands together mm. or touching their face or whatever. And the real purpose for that is it helps us with anxiety, right? So how can that be used? Well, so the individuals using it to help them soothe themselves from the anxiety. But if you're in a therapeutic situation, you might want to pay attention to those behaviors because it indicates the person is feeling some anxiety. Now, obviously, if we're about to go on TV or something like that, we're probably all going to be engaging in self-soothing behaviors <laughs> unless we're, you know, a regular on, on TV, you know, so we're all going to look nervous. But if you're in a, if you're seeing somebody engaging in lots of those displacement behaviors in a situation where there should be no anxiety, it's a good indicator that they're they're feeling some anxiety. Do you think it's important for the person doing the self-soothing behavior to have an awareness that they're doing that to guide the way that they interact? 
Yeah, I think if you want to realize, are you conveying things to other people? And then the other thing too, is we have, see, there's a lot of complexity to this because some people just get in the habit of engaging in certain kinds of behaviors and they just do it as a habit, you know, Mm -hmm. and it isn't necessarily any sort of anxiety. I was talking to a guy and I noticed he he did this a lot. He he sort of touched his lower nose a lot while he spoke. After a while, I realized it was just a sort of a nervous tick, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. or just sort of a habit that he had, but it didn't indicate anything. I don't think it was a self-soothing behavior. Well, that's very interesting because it's another example about how people can misinterpret somebody else's behavior. So that's the complicated dynamic between the encoder and the decoder. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How about posture? Yeah, I think posture is an overlooked cue for many people is that they don't think about how someone's appearing, how they walked into the room. But it's really amazing. You know, my sister had a friend and she had this talent. It was the oddest talent. She could imitate people's walks and she could do it (laughs) perfectly. And you don't even think about it, but she would say, who is this? And we'd all look and we'd go, oh my gosh, that's so-and-so, you know? And so that I think gives you a sense of how complex these skills are. For some reason, this woman developed the ability to you know, capture people's, the way they walked, that aspect of posture. So what are some postures that might indicate a particular internal emotional state or whatnot? Yeah. So again, we'd want to take individual differences into account, but if we sort of see the person who's normally not slumped over and, you know, we can read those cues and say, you know, it looks like something's wrong. And again, like the wizards, we might have our friend and our friend walks into our at work, at our office, and we notice something's different, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we may not be able to put our finger on, oh my gosh, there's a postural difference there. So one of the ways I look at it in terms of individual differences is some people sort of wear their hearts on their sleeve. They, and what that is, is they're, um, they're very emotionally expressive, whatever they're feeling seems to come out and they don't control it. They don't regulate it very well. And, and that's my wife, right? And I can <laughs> tell the minute she wakes up, and I'm not particularly skilled, although I study this, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm much better than anybody else because I don't work on that all the time, but I can read her pretty well. And that's another thing. If you're familiar with the person, you're going to be more accurate. Sure, because you're in tune if something is different than what their normal behavior right. is, right? Again, it's like we it's like we suggested with the wizards. I can tell something's wrong. I don't know exactly what's wrong. But then, you know, the other thing too is remember, nonverbal and verbal has to go together. Mm-hmm. And so when I notice something's wrong, that's my cue to sit down, have a genuine conversation, really listen and say, you know, what's bothering you? How about gaze? So gaze is something we don't think about very much. We don't think about, but we know that sometimes if a stranger stares you in the eyes, it makes you very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So we know that eye contact can cause causes arousal and that can be threatening. Somebody staring at you, you know, you oh, I'm threatened. But also if you're, you know, in a crowded bar or something, a little bit of eye contact might indicate someone's interested in you. And so, you know, We've looked at, at those kind of things. We actually did, uh, Howard Friedman and I did some research on, uh, I don't think anybody did this, but we asked them to send the motion of seduction, to be mm-hmm. seductive, right? Mm-hmm. And try to be seductive. And we found that there was no you know, universal seduction performance. But what we realized is the receiver better see it as positive. Because if the receiver sees it as negative, you're not being very seductive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in other words, you know, you could, so the behaviors, the nonverbal cues were all over the place, but they had to come across in a positive way for sure. it to be seductive. Right? Again, it's probably a dynamic process. But one is looking at somebody else and that per, getting feedback from that person and modulating how the eye contact is going. It sounds so clinical. I know in a bar, it's just not so much like that, but, but there's, there's a feedback loop going there. Absolutely. I want to tell you a a funny story, Ron. I think you'll enjoy this. You know, my father did attachment research with squirrel monkeys. And so I was around a lot of monkeys when I was growing up. And one time I was at 
the laboratory. This was at SRI International up in Menlo Park. Uh -huh. And uh, there were monkeys in the cage and I was looking at one of the monkeys in the cage and I was making eye contact with the monkey and the monkey started grimacing, going grimacing at me. And I said to my dad, I said, look, I'm making eye contact with a monkey and he's smiling at me. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, I don't know if you know what that means in primate. Yes, I know, because we had squirrel monkeys in, in, when I was in graduate school and I would go up and torment them because I was studying nonverbal behavior and I would do exactly what you do, which is that to a squirrel monkey, staring them in the eyes is a threat. And right. That, and the smile is really a grimace. It's right. really an anger cue, right? So, so yeah, I used to go up and bother the squirrel monkeys too, just to kind of practice my nonverbal cues. But, uh, but yeah, that's exactly right. And and that's where we get it from. I mean, you know, we, the, you know, so we're not all that different. Think of an angry face. Charles Darwin studied this. He studied this over a hundred years ago. Expression of emotions, and now it's one hundred twenty-five years ago. Hundred, mm -hmm. almost one hundred fifty. Mm -hmm. Think about an angry face. What does an angry face look like? You squint your eyes, mm -hmm. bare your teeth. Now think about the angry dog. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what you see. The bearing snarling. of the teeth. Snarling. That, that looking right at you, narrowing the eyes. You can tell the dog's about ready to attack. Mm -hmm. And a human response looks very, very similar. A human anger response. So we did get these. These are evolutionary, right? We got them from our ancestors. What are shortfall signals? So shortfall signals are, as they sound, they're sort of short of a full signal. So somebody who is acting like they're engaged with you, but they're not making eye contact or a, uh, a cue that doesn't seem to go all the way, right? You know, a fake smile is kind of a shortfall signal if, if you've just told a joke, right? So it, it, it just falls short of a... Of a actual expression right so would an example of this be like you're engaged in a conversation with somebody that person sort of is, is looking away and looking back and not really doing the kinds of things one would expect one to do if they were really interested engaged in the conversation exactly and the person who is a skilled uh decoder would know that this person doesn't seem to be too interested in this yeah, yeah. one who's not good keeps on talking and doesn't realize that this other person probably just wants to get away. That's right. That's right. And and that's a great example, Aaron. Is like you know. So how you know we haven't talked about like why do why would you want to use learn these things, right? Mm. Well, for those sorts of reasons, to become more skilled in social interaction, to to realize you know don't waste your breath on this person, you know the you know that kind of thing. So it's it's really about one of the ways I just look at this is it's just being socially skilled. Sure. Right? And it's one aspect of being socially skilled. Sure. How about pupil dilation? Is that something that you can actually detect in another person? That is pretty hard to detect. You'd have to be close enough to actually see their, their pupils dilate. But there has been research where when people look at something that interests them, their pupils do dilate. And on the flip side, there's a famous study where they took identical pictures of subjects in one study, the famous one is a kind of an attractive woman. And they just increased, you know, photoshopped and increased her pupil dilation. And then had the people rate these photos for how attractive they were and found if they had dilated pupils, they rated them as more attractive. Wow. Well, why would that happen? Well, I mean, what's the evolutionary roots of that? Well, this person's interested in me. I see them as more attractive because they seem to be attracted to me. Is the idea that when pupils are dilated, the person is kind of more relaxed and at ease, which means they're sort of more, more sort of present? I, th I think it's more that they're interested. Okay. So they're, they're seeing something they like because that will happen. So if somebody's hungry and you show them a photograph of a ice cream sundae, their pupils will dilate to the sundae. If the person's on the hunt for a car, they'll dilate to the, you know, the brand new car photo, right? Got it, right. So really it may be that even on a real subconscious level, we're detecting pupil dilation, even if we're not consciously aware of it. That's true. And it shows how complex and subtle a lot of nonverbal cues are. Yeah. What's facial laterality? Laterality is, you know, does the, 
the sides of the face, are they coordinated? So you can think about the crooked smile, right? The crooked smile. Is this person really happy or, or you know, or is it something else? So that's a, a, a good example of that. And a lot of times, it, again, it's that something's wrong kind of thing that the wizards have. So laterality, many of us may not be able to detect that. Now, there can be other reasons for a lack of facial laterality. It could be, you know, somebody has a, a neurological problem. It, it could be that, you know, you have a, the way your face is configured. But generally, if someone who doesn't have those issues has sort of a crooked smile or when you're doubting someone, you sort of narrow one eye mm -hmm. sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a, a cue of, you know, where you've broken the laterality because it means something's amiss. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, when the facial expressions are lateral, it would indicate more authenticity and genuineness to somebody. Exactly. And if that, if it isn't like that, even if it's because of some kind of facial paralysis or something that probably throws people off a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. What's nonverbal leakage? Okay, so nonverbal leakage is, a, is a, again, a Neckman coin term. Mm -hmm. And what he found was that if you were trying to detect deception in individuals, that there was greater accuracy by looking at um, the cues that you normally wouldn't see. And it was probably because the liar is controlling the more obvious cues. So what they found is that if you just, if you have somebody, for example, seated in a chair and they're lying or telling the truth, if you have some of the detectors focusing on the face, they're less accurate than the ones that are focusing on just the body mm. because they see those nervous cues that are sort of leaking out. And it's the idea of I'm controlling my facial expression and I'm making sure that I'm making eye contact with you as I lie, but my hands and my feet and my posture give me away. I see. So that person's saying, yes, his eye contact was great and he was smiling and all of this, but did you notice what was going on with his left foot? That's right. That's right. So the, 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 the idea is the cues of anxiety, you can control the upper cues, but they leak out through other channels. Got it. And what about tie signs? Okay. So tie signs are kind of interesting because we engage in them all the time. And that's basically, well, think of this, when you hold your spouse or your loved one's hand, that's a tie sign. But also when you feel like it's okay to touch their shoulder or, you know, that kind of thing. And so tie signs basically are indicating that you have a relationship with this person. It can be used in a possessive way, right? So very often if a, you know, a couple's there and a threatening person comes into the scene, you know, you know, I'm here with my girlfriend and maybe this guy's going to going to steal my girlfriend. I might just put my arm around her and that'd be a tie sign. Any of these nonverbal cues that indicate some sort of connection. Another sort of tie sign might be where every once in a while a couple in love or whatever, they look into each other's eyes, right? And so, so when somebody comes in, it's like we're sharing that that connection. So behaviors that tie you to somebody else. Exactly. And would be sort of a giveaway that there's a, a desire for a connection there, which could happen in just a genuine, I love you, or I want to, I want to connect to you for everything from that to like, I'm holding on to you because I'm, there's th a threatening situation here and I'm feeling jealous. Yeah. 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 So a jealous, you know, classic examples in a jealousy situation, the, they grab the other person. So that this person's mine, right? Got it. Well, we have a few more that I want to talk about that are more specifically related to physical attractiveness, traction, and romantic situations. And I think people will really enjoy this because people are always wanting to up their game and be more effective when it comes to dating and meeting people. So let's spend a few minutes talking about some of those cues. So one that you've mentioned is displaying positive affect. Like that seems kind of obvious, but if we if we kind of dig into that a little bit more, how do we discuss this in terms of nonverbal behavior? Yeah, so positive affect is, you know, obviously being a little more upbeat, tone of voice that's a little more positive, uh, facial expressions that, you know, tend to be more positive, more smiling, that kind of thing. 
but of course it's you know it's controlling it right too so the regulation comes in because you don't want to be over the top right and in fact in kind of a seductive scenario you might want to express a little positive affect but sort of you know back off a little bit don't be too you know uh uh, laughing at the other person's joke, you know, jokes, you know, you don't want to overdo it. You want to give it the appropriate amount. So why is overdoing it unappealing? Well, overdoing it is unappealing because it looks, it, it looks fake sometimes, right? Right, right. Or, or you look like you're out of control, right? And so, you know, and I mean, there's individual differences in what people find attractive. And so somebody who's maybe over the top might like somebody else who's over the top too. So, you know, and that comes from the, that research on seduction. So here's what we did. We, we, had, we had them rated. How seductive is this person? But then we also had another group of raters watch these videotape people trying to be seductive. And we just had them rate them on a positive negative. How positive do they appear? How negative do they appear? The more positive they appeared, the more likely they were also seen as seductive by the other judges, right? Mm -hmm. the, the more negative they appeared, the less seductive they appeared. So we don't know exactly what they were doing, but if they, if they, if it came across in a negative affect way, it was not seen as seductive. It was only the positive affect. Well, sure, because nobody wants to be around a downer, right? Exactly. So exactly. being positive and upbeat makes a lot of sense for an attractiveness. But I think I understand being a little over the top sounds like somebody's trying too hard and that's fake. And I'm guessing there's a certain amount of genuineness and authenticity that needs to be conveyed for the other person to trust the person who's communicating yeah. with them. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's that, that's exactly the idea of not overdoing it. What about body orientation and openness? How does that play out in a romantic interest scenario? Yeah, so I think in, in a romantic situation, you're you're gonna see that. You know, you're gonna see that the person is open to you. They're they're, you know, they've got a, a kind of their arms are open or they're oriented toward you as opposed to away from you. You know, you can think about the defensive kind of postures that people could engage in, you know, uh, crossing their arms, you know. It's really interesting. There was a, back in the, gosh, 1970, I think, uh, got a Dr. Julian Fast, I think he was a, psych a psychiatrist, and he wrote a book called Body Language. And on mm. the picture was a very attractive woman in kind of a mini, you know, 1970s miniskirt. <laughs> and she was sitting with her with her arms crossed and her legs crossed. And on the cover of the book, sold about a 10 million copies or something, said, is she being seductive? Is she, you know, and all these kinds of things. And it implied that cover always implied that there was a direct definition. So if you cross your arms, it always means that you're closed off, but that's not necessarily the case, right? Mm. But generally, the more constricted we are, that's not very welcoming to another person. So when we talk about mm -hmm. body orientation and openness, we want to sort of be open our bodies up like you can approach me is the signal. And what about eye contact? What's the right amount of eye contact? You mentioned that a little bit before. Yeah. So I think, okay, I think it comes down to this is, so I'm in a, I'm in a bar. I'm not looking for anyone. I better not hold anybody's gaze. I better not look at them too long because they're going to think I'm interested in them. Mm -hmm. But if I am kind of on the prowl, then what I probably want to do is hold the gaze just a little bit longer than normal and then look away. Because what that's going to do is indicate, well, there may be some interest there but I'm not threatening. This is not a threat. This is an attraction or an attempt at attraction. So that's why it, it really is very, very, it's not all or none. It's not this or that. It's subtlety, you know, it's subtlety in learning these things. Are, is there, are there gender differences with that? Because I've just, it's been a long time since I've been in any kind of dating world. I've been married for a long time, but I'm just yeah, imagining like, you know, a male trying to hold a gaze longer, I would guess be really creepy in a heterosexual situation toward a woman would be really creepy. Would that be, and threatening, obviously, would that yeah. be perceived the same way from a- Well, I think, I, think you, I think a man would not be able to hold the gaze as long mm -hmm. uh, uh, as a woman would because, uh, because the man could be seen as a threat. I mean, and just males are more threatening than females because they're more aggressive. I mean, so, mm -hmm. so I think that's that those issues that about the subtlety of it, 
it really is about sort of just the right amount, you know, making sure that you're that you're not overdoing it. And that that's a good example of where you'd be overdoing it. You know, a guy goes into the bar, he's trying to uh, be attractive to women and he's really threatening them. And they go, why is that guy staring at me so much? You know? Right. I could sort of see the opposite being true that if the woman is not returning any eye contact enough of it, then the guy is going to be like, Oh, this is too difficult here. I'm just yeah, going to give not up. In- She's not interested, right? And so the the sort of, and then, you know, people say, well, play hard to get. Well, that can backfire. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a whole lot of these sort of like romantic comedies where they play, play too hard to get and then the person doesn't realize that, you know, and that's probably partly true in the real world, right? Right. These are very difficult cues to really get down perfectly. And as you said, there are individual differences as well in how people respond. That's right. What about touch? Now, that's another one where I could see there being underdoing and overdoing of touch yeah yeah and you know that's a that's an example and there you're going to find a a big sex difference too right so you know the woman you know touching you or lightly touching you or whatever can show interest you know if a man is touching a woman all it could be seen as threatening or creepy right so Mm -hmm. um so you do have to uh be careful but what usually what you see in these kind of you know seductive situations or whatever is the sort of light brushing right you know just sort of or you know the excuse for touching you know so you think about you know well that's really funny and then touching the person's hand or something like that you know indicating that that you have some you want some more connection but not overdoing it again i'm guessing this is another one of those situations where having the skills is helpful because some very mild touch and then watching to see what the response from the other person is, the feedback you're getting would give you a lot of clues about whether or not it's working. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I got asked to talk to army officers about, and these were officers who were obviously stationed in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they said, well, you know, we're concerned because we're trying to not be so threatening. And and they we wanted to talk about facial expressions and all of these cues or whatever. And I, f- I found some pictures of what some of these guys look like when they're in these villages in Afghanistan. And you can't even see their faces because they've got goggles on and just the whole demeanor of, you know, having a weapon and goggles and a helmet and everything. Yeah. It's like, no wonder they're threatened, sure. you know? And so, so the first step is they got to be able to see the face. Right. So I thought, well, wow. You know, but then, then we started talking about, well, when you're actually able to sit there face to face, one of the things you want to do is you want to take off your sunglasses or your goggles or whatever, and really show them your face and be, and connect with them. Right. Right. It's such a basic thing, but it makes so much sense. How is anybody going to connect with somebody if they you know, look like a stormtrooper from Star Wars. I mean, there's just, there's nothing, there's nothing to read there. Yeah. And the point of the, I mean, you know, it's a movie, but the point of the stormtroopers is that, that makes them anonymous, right? You you can't tell one stormtrooper from the rest. You can't tell what expression because you can only see the helmet. Exactly. Well, Ron, these are really super interesting and helpful insights about these various different kinds of nonverbal behaviors. I'm sure people will be able to dig into that a bit more and try to take a look at their own behaviors and understand other people well. It, it sounds like a skill that's really worth paying attention to and developing. I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts on the subject before we wrap up today. Yeah, I think I think the the maybe the final thought is is try some of this, right? Think think about it. Some of the things that we've talked about become maybe a better observer of human behavior, you know, and and uh, look around. You'll probably see some of these things that you maybe never thought of before. And, you know, what, what exactly is that person uh, saying? So I kind of encourage people to become a people watcher. That's actually the first thing I tell you. Mm-hmm. If you're going to increase your sensitivity to nonverbal cues, you got to start watching people. You know? There's never a better laboratory than real life, right? That's right. That's right. You know, and people say, well, I like to, you know, people watch, you know, it's kind of interesting because my wife has no ex- experience in any of this, but it, but it, but she's a real people watcher and she'll, we'll sit by a pool or something and she'll say, she'll make her guesses about what this person's <laughs> like and what these two people are doing, you know, and, 
she just really is motivated to kind of watch people. And I, I think that's why she's, she's actually pretty good sometimes. She can, can tell me in advance, that couple's going to start fighting over there. Oh, sure <laughs> enough, they did, you know. Ron, it's been a super interesting conversation. I've really enjoyed having you speak on this subject with me today. Thanks so much for meeting with me. Yeah, well, it's been a lot of fun. And so thank you, Aaron, for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.